trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but when people ask me, Brian, what exactly do you do? I don't always know what to tell them. And is it maybe it's because I'm just an indecisive guy, or maybe it's because I'm trying to cover a lot of different, <laughs> a lot of different uh, bases at once here. But essentially, my job here is to provide you with some food for thought. Now, that's not to tell you what to think. It's not to insist that this is the only thing you should be feasting upon. But I'm trying to offer a counter to the mainstream narratives out there that insist all kinds of uh, interesting things that uh, typically end up requiring us to, to shed a degree of our autonomy and our personal freedom. Seems like there, there are whole systems right now that are dedicated to keeping us afraid, of keeping us angry, and keeping us divided and at each other's throats. Not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the people in power, which is what much of our mass media serves these days. All I'm trying to do is encourage clear, independent thought at the individual level, combined with the idea that, hey, you probably at some level feel a call to stand up and make a difference. And if that is the case, my friend, you are in the right place. I've got some great stuff to share with you today, too. Let me start by thanking my sponsors. In fact, I would like to direct your attention to my sponsors. You'll find a link for each of them on my website at thebrianhydeshow.com. Now, you can click up on the banner up at the top of the website, our sponsors, or on my daily show notes down at the bottom of the page. There's a link that will take you to each one of my sponsors, including hslammo.com, modicellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. All right, let's talk about the media narrative, shall we? Should we just go ahead and dive right in? I still maintain that Glenn Greenwald is one of the very few voices out there who actually deserves the title of journalist. And I say this based on he has many, many years of publishing truths and of seeking truth and and writing to inform as opposed to simply, you know, maintaining the narrative or trying to steer people, you know, into a particular narrative. And it's been sad because I know he, his uh, his partner has been having some uh, very serious uh, life-threatening health problems. And so Glenn's been pretty, he's been laying low here lately. And that's tough. I've missed his voice out there, you know, trying to correct or at least add some kind of perspective to what's going on. But uh, recently he was on Twitter and I grabbed the thread that he started and have created a thread unroll so that you can read this for yourself And it's all about the players and the goals that are working to quash dissent on a mass scale. The way Glenn Greenwald puts it is, he says, the regime of censorship being imposed on the Internet by a consortium of D.C. Dems, billionaire-funded disinformation experts, the U.S. security state, and liberal employees of media corporations is dangerously intensifying in ways, he says, I believe are not adequately understood. He says, a series of crises have been cynically and aggressively exploited to inexorably restrict the range of permitted views 
and expand pretexts for online silencing and deplatforming. So things like Trump's election, Russiagate, January 6th, COVID and the war in Ukraine, all of them fostered new methods of repression. And he gives you examples. I mean, he gives you screenshots that show, you know, Facebook takes down Ukraine disinformation network and bans Russian-backed media. I know. Remember when that was a thing? Well, all right. <laughs> Glenn is, is drawing attention to it. He says, during the failed attempt in January to force Spotify to remove Joe Rogan, the country's most popular podcaster, remember that? He says, I wrote that the current religion of Western liberals in politics and media is censorship, their prime weapon of activism. But their failure to censor Rogan only strengthened their repressive campaigns. Greenwald writes, Dems routinely abuse their majoritarian power in D.C. to explicitly coerce big tech silencing of their opponents and dissent. This is government censorship disguised as corporate autonomy. But there's now an entire new industry that's aligned with Dems to pressure big tech to censor. Think tanks and self-proclaimed disinformation experts funded by Omidyar, Soros, and the U.S.-U.K. security state use benign-sounding names to glorify ideological censorship as neutral expertise. And he's got some links and, again, screenshots to show you exactly what he's talking about. Okay, he's not pulling this out of thin air. But Glenn Greenwald says the worst, most vile arm of this regime are the censorship-mad liberal employees of big media corporations. Yeah, and he's talking people like Taylor Lawrence, or the New York Times tech unit, and, and he lists several of these, noting that masquerading as journalists, in quotation marks, they align with the scummiest Dem groups to silence and deplatform. And he says it's astonishing to watch Dems and their allies in media corporations posture as opponents of fascism, while their main goal is to unite state and corporate power to censor their critics and to degrade the Internet into an increasingly repressive weapon of information control. That is interesting. Ha! He says a major myth that must be quickly dismantled. Political censorship is not the byproduct of autonomous choices of big tech companies. He says this is happening because D.C. Democrats and the U.S. security state are threatening reprisals if they refuse. They're explicit. And he has a, a video that, that tells you exactly, you know, why that is. But he says the worst is watching people whose job, whose job title in corporate HR departments is journalist take the lead in agitating for censorship. He says they exploit the platforms of corporate giants to pioneer increasingly dangerous means of banning dissenters. These are the authoritarians. And again, he gives you clear, convincing examples of what this looks like. And says this is the frog in boiling water problem. The increase in censorship is gradual, but it's continuous, preventing recognition of how severe it's become. The European Union now legally mandates censorship of Russian news. They've made it illegal for companies to air it. And so many new tactics of censorship repression have emerged in the West. Trudeau freezing bank accounts of trucker protesters. PayPal partnering with the Anti-Defamation League to ban dissidents from the financial system. Big tech platforms openly colluding in unison to deperson people from the Internet. And all of this stems from the classic mentality of all would-be tyrants. Our enemies are so dangerous, their views so threatening, that everything we do, lying, repression, censorship, is noble. 
In fact, if you haven't seen it, that's what made the Sam Harris confession so vital. That is how liberal elites think. Sam Harris famously said this a couple of weeks ago about, I don't care if Hunter Biden has has children tied up in his basement. It was important enough to to keep Donald Trump out of office that, uh, you know, he, he still would have voted for Joe Biden over Trump and believed any of the lies about Trump. Isn't that something? By any means necessary. When somebody starts talking that way, and especially when they start shedding their, their um, concepts of right and wrong, you need to run for the exits. And Glenn Greenwald says, look, this is why I regard the Hunter Biden scandal as uniquely alarming. Because the media didn't just bury the archive. The CIA concocted a lie about it. Remember, they told us it's Russian disinformation. Media outlets spread that lie. Big tech censured it because lying and repression to them is justified. Now, Glenn Greenwald says the authoritarian mentality that led CIA, corporate media, and big tech to lie about the Biden archive before the election is the same thing driving this new censorship craze. It's the hallmark of all tyranny. Our energy, our enemies rather, are so evil and so dangerous, anything is justified to stop them. But Glenn Greenwald asks, how come not one media outlet that spread this CIA lie, the one that Hunter Biden's archive was Russian disinformation, how come not one outlet retracted or apologized? And the answer is, they believe they are so benevolent, their cause so just, that lying and censorship are benevolent. That ought to make you feel better, right? Now, he says the one encouraging aspect, as so often happens with despotic factions, they're triggering and fueling the backlash to their excesses. Sites devoted to free speech led by Rumble, along with Substack, Call-In, and others, are exploding in growth. But as these free, spa- free speech platforms grow and become a threat, the efforts to crush them also grow exactly as AOC and other Democrats and their corporate media allies successfully demanded Google, Apple, and Amazon destroy Parler when it became the single most popular app in the country. Now, he says it's hard to overstate how much pressure is brought to bear by liberal censors on these free speech platforms, especially on platforms like Rumble. Their vendors are threatened, their hosting companies target, targeted, rather, they have accounts canceled and firms refusing to deal with them. It's a regime. Going to come back to Glenn Greenwald's commentary in just a few moments, but if you want to check this out at your leisure and really follow up on the resources, watch the videos that he links, look at the tweets that he links to. He's backing up everything that he's saying here. Definitely worth considering. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know Garage Door Pros is one of my sponsors. I would encourage you, please... Talk to them, especially if you live in St. George or or Cedar City or Mesquite or Colorado City, that beautiful little southwest corner of Utah. These are the guys you want to talk to for installation, service, and repair of your garage doors, be it uh, residential or commercial. They're there as a local company, there to help you. Much faster lead time than you're going to get anywhere else. Call them at 435-525-2773 or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. So I'm sharing this article from Glenn Greenwald about uh, about the censorship apparatus that has sprung up around us. 
And I hope that what you're hearing from Glenn, I hope this rings true. And you don't have to be a news junkie and you don't have to be a political junkie for this stuff to matter. It's just, it's a matter of how do you get good information on the world when there are so many systems dedicated to keeping your focus off the truth and only on the narrative of what they allow people to talk about. Glenn Greenwald says, it's not melodrama or hyperbole to say that what we have is a war in the West, a war over whether the internet will be free, over whether dissent will be allowed, over whether we'll live in the closed propaganda system our elites claim the bad countries impose. It's no different. Even in the most despotic nations, the banal conformist citizen thinks they're free. As Rosa Luxemburg said, he who does not move does not feel his chains. Oof. And of course, Chris Hayes and Don Lemons think this is all absurd. Good liberals threaten nobody and thus flourish. But Glenn Greenwald says the measure of societal freedom is not how servants of power are treated. They're always left alone or rewarded. The key metric is how dissidents are treated. Now they're imprisoned like Julian Assange or exiled like Edward Snowden and above all, silenced by corporate state power. He says, for more than a month, I've removed myself from the news cycle and the discourse because my only priority right now is my family, my kids, and his husband's health. But he says, distance brings clarity. The censorship mania consuming Western liberals is deeply dangerous and growing. And Glenn Greenwald says, as I've often said, the media outlets screaming most loudly about disinformations are the ones that spread it most frequently, casually, and destructively. It's equally true of those now claiming to fight fascism. Real repression comes from them. So he says, I'm going to remain detached till the health crisis in our families resolve, but internet freedom and free speech are not ancillary causes. They're central. This is the core. This was the core cause of the Snowden reporting. Without a free internet and free speech, dissent is an illusion. He says, above all, stay focused on who your real enemies are. They're not your neighbors who've been deprived or deceived, rather, into supporting the wrong party or the wrong ideology. They are victims of the repression, which is all about maintaining a closed system of propaganda that cannot be challenged. And worst of all, the most repugnant and despicable are those calling themselves journalists while doing the opposite of what that term implies. They serve rather than challenge power. Ooh, that's a big one. They deceive rather than inform. They demand censorship rather than free and open inquiry. And so he says, heap scorn on the corporate outlets and their deceitful pro-censorship employees abusing the journalist label. Read them with full skepticism or just ignore them. But he says, support the outlets and platforms that want to protect the free inquiry and the right of dissent, not rob you of it. Wow. That's pretty powerful stuff. Now, I want to springboard from that into the concept of, okay, so let's assume that you feel a calling to, to, to make a difference, to do something more than simply, you know, go along with the flow of things and to, uh, to, to do as you're told. All right, let's, let's say that uh, you aim to misbehave. Hopefully any Firefly fans out there will be like, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely me. Well, there are a few questions you probably would want to ask yourself. And those are, those are questions that, uh, that you need to ask if you want to be a difference maker. Now, I want to set the stage here by saying, look, I know it's easy to succumb to the temptation of wasting time and energy trying to fix blame for all the various dilemmas and the conflicts that we see in front of us. 
This is what politicians and pundits are best at inciting, right? Little fights or little battles that pit people against each other. And blaming other people has become kind of a national pastime of sorts, especially with social media. But none of that complaining leads to effective change. You want to make a difference in the world? You've got to be, first of all, humble, okay? So if you want to make a difference, I mean, you're going to have to separate yourself from the crowd, not because you're better than everybody, but because you can see that there is a better way. And the people who ultimately have impact for good in the world are the people who found a moral clarity that they value above their own comfort and their own personal advantage. You can see where that would probably weed out a lot of folks right there. And it starts with this personal recognition that there's an intolerable gap between the way things are and the way things could be. And that's not a simple case of, you know, some narcissist, well, this is what I want to impose on everybody else. It's instead a realization that each one of us faces a conscious decision to either stand for what we hold to be true or to remain silent so we don't risk disapproval. And if you've ever stood for anything of substance in your life, you already know that uh, that invites pain and it invites punishment. Paul Rosenberg used to point out, if you're not willing to suffer for your beliefs, you're not a believer of any real depth. So if you challenge the status quo, you're going to be portrayed as an enemy of the system. You just have to accept that. And anybody who's ever been on the receiving end of the kind of derision and ridicule that's dished out by the people who are actually hiding in the crowd, (laughs) you can appreciate just how difficult standing alone can be. But as uncomfortable as it may be, it still serves a very positive purpose. One, One reason is serious opposition is a very powerful tool that actually tells us when we are having impact. It also helps us realize where our conviction lies because the first time somebody really takes a good shot at you, especially publicly, that's enough to make most people kind of question, wow, do I really believe this? Is this something that I, that I can continue to, to cling to or should I adjust my, my thinking because that kind of hurts? So if you're, if you're attached to security and acceptance more so than you're attached to your principles, you're not going to have that much impact. If you're trying to avoid flack, yeah, you won't have much impact. Now, if you're serious about making a difference, though, here are a few questions that you have to be willing to ask. Questions like, is there anything besides my family for which I would be willing to risk my reputation, my livelihood, my personal freedom, or my life? You have to ask yourself, how bad would things have to get before I would be willing to act without permission? You have to be willing to ask, is it possible to make my stand while remaining socially neutral? Is there anything that I could be doing that's more important, with the possible exception of my family, than what I'm doing at this moment? you got to be willing to ask, is there a line in the sand that marks the point of no return where making a stand for what I believe matters requires that I break with normal society? Kind of saw this with the whole vaccination mandate last year, didn't we? And finally, is there a role that I must play in standing up for truth as I understand it? And if so, what is that role? Now, these aren't the kind of questions that you're likely to hear from people who crave the safety of the herd and are just anxious to reassure our rulers, we love you, we love you. You'll notice those kind of questions, uh, they don't uh, represent the lack of introspection that's the hallmark of the opportunist. A person who asks these kinds of questions has to have a greater love of their principles than they do for themselves and their comfort. 
and a good test of whether our willingness to stand for principle is self-serving or not can be found in whether or not we're willing to speak out when we're not the one who is being directly harmed. In other words, do you stand for your principles, especially as it pertains to standing up for others? So don't walk away from your principles, I guess, is, is the, the admonition here. Embrace your unique role, whatever it is, however you're to make a difference in the world, and ask yourself those six questions that I just shared with you. What would I be willing to give up in order to be true to my principles? I know, nobody's really looking forward to it. It's like, wow, that kind of sounds like it could get painful. Oh, it definitely can. But we need people who are capable of facing that kind of discomfort. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com as well as LifesavingFood.com. Just two of my fine sponsors. I would appreciate it if you'd click on the links I provide in my show notes. Go pay them a visit. So spend some money with them or refer somebody there if, if it's not what you need at the moment. But let them know that their advertising message is reaching your ears. Well, let's talk for a moment about uh, price gougers. I know that any time a disaster strikes, you will always find news stories and people expressing frustration and sometimes even anger at what they call the gougers who are charging exorbitant prices for scarce but needed goods. Now, it took me a while to come around to this way of thinking, but I think the price gougers actually are doing everybody a favor. In fact, I've got an article here from Huck Davenport. Gougers deserve a medal. I don't don't let that knee jerk stop you from considering what he has to say here. But there's some very important information that's communicated by what people are willing to pay for scarce goods. And it's 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 a little counterintuitive, but I believe this is this is truth. Huck Davenport says the emotional cries of price gouging during the lockdown seem a distant remnant of the lockdowns, but the legal cases brought then which are finally making their way through the courts are a grim reminder of just how ignorant of economics and law our bureaucratic betters are. Makes one wonder, do government jobs attract the ignorant or do they simply lobotomize good men on arrival? One such case just reversed and remanded, the People versus Quality King, showcases how absurd New York's gouging law is and how unprincipled its courts. Now, the law reads, during any abnormal disruption of the market for consumer goods vital and necessary for the health, safety, and welfare of consumers... No party shall sell such goods for an amount which represents an unconscionably excessive price. Well, Lord knows the geniuses in Albany couldn't have been more pleased with themselves, but discerning the law's meaning would require work work uh, more for oracles than for the citizenry. After all, what constitutes an abnormal disruption? What products are vital and necessary? What price is so excessive as to be unconscionable? Gouging, it would seem, was now set to be a, to, was now to be adjudicated by the same legal standard Justice Potter Stewart famously set forth in his concurrence to Jacob Bellis v. Ohio for hardcore pornography. But I know it when I see it, an otherwise laughable standard if only we weren't governed by it. Since Jacob Bellis, thankfully, the court has considered reconsidered rather such arbitrariness, writing in Grained v. Rockford, quote, 
Vague laws offend several important values. First, because we assume that man is free to steer between lawful and unlawful conduct, we insist that laws give the person of ordinary intelligence a reasonable opportunity to know what is prohibited so that he may act accordingly. Vague laws may trap the innocent by not providing fair warning. Second, if arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement is to be prevented, laws must provide explicit standards for those who apply them. A vague law impermissibly delegates basic policy matters to policemen, judges, and juries for resolution on an ad hoc and subjective basis with the attendant dangers of arbitrary and discriminatory application. Now, never has the void for vagueness doctrine been so superbly articulated and never so thoroughly ignored. And he says, not only is the unconscionably excessive language in the New York statute unconstitutionally vague, defying the principle of separation of powers, the law itself illegally delegates basic policy matters to the judicial branch. So in Quality King, the court was asked to decide at what point the defendant should have known there was an official disruption in the market triggering the statute. Was the declaration of a national emergency uh, by the president that point? No. A governor declared state emergency? Certainly not. The court ruled it was when the CDC tweeted, now is the time for U.S. businesses, hospitals, and communities to begin preparing for the possible spread of COVID-19. Don't know how they could have missed that. Next, the court was asked to decide whether Lysol spray was vital and necessary. Admitting these words are not defined in the statute, the judges appealed to Webster's to reimagine the phrase as of the utmost importance and absolutely needed. Now, despite the media's 2020-induced hysteria, we've known throughout recorded history, history rather, that respiratory viruses have never been transmitted from surfaces. And even if they were, soap and water effectively clean surfaces. Certainly, Lysol spray was neither of the utmost importance nor absolutely needed. But facts are anathema to a liberal court. What's important is how people feel. Lysol was, at least in the eyes of the consumer, of the utmost importance and absolutely needed to address the terrible danger. Finally, the court decided needed rather to decide if defendants' prices were unconscionably excessive. Now, here it decided not to consult Webster's, but for the record, unconscionable is defined as shockingly unfair, so bad as to be immoral. And indeed, they ruled that a bottle of Lysol priced at $7.37 when it used to be $5.50 shocks the conscience. Biden's inflation? Eh, not so much. So for Quality King to have known what is prohibited so it may act accordingly, it would have needed to constantly monitor Twitter for potentially statute-triggering tweets, poll its customers to see what products they believed were vital and necessary, and then petition the court for an endorsement of its prices. Business as usual in New York. Now, Quality King also asked the court at oral arguments how a law so ambiguous could be constitutional. This is how they put it. On the constitutional point, think of this. On the exact same record, the exact same facts, exact same arguments, statute, and law, one judge says not grossly excessive. If this court says unconscionably excessive, I submit this proves our point. It establishes our position that nobody in Quality King could know the answer in advance, rendering the law unconstitutionally vague. And the court, while seeming to agree, simply dismissed the argument anyway with a stunning abruptness. The court said, well, to be sure, general business law, subsection 396R, does not contain a quantitative metric for ascertaining whether a given price is unconscionably excessive or unconscionably extreme. The absence of such a metric, however, does not affect the statute's constitutionality. Appeal dismissed. Well, 
that settles that. As preposterously unconstitutional as the actual law is, and as bankrupt as the court's reasoning was, it's all a distraction from the real story, which is, as Milton Friedman quipped, that gougers deserve a medal. It's as if every lawmaker skipped Economics 101. Its bedrock principle states that the intersection of supply and demand curve determines price. In an emergency, demand soars initially, much faster than supply can adjust, so prices rise. And it's those higher prices that signal to and incentivize the market to create more supply, more of the product people desperately need. Importantly, higher prices also encourage consumers to limit their use of the suddenly scarce resource so shelves don't go bare. How many basements are still filled with toilet paper? Okay, good question. Anti-gouging laws, whether ambiguously unconstitutional or not, rather than protecting the public welfare, do exactly the opposite, guaranteeing shortages that will persist far longer than they might otherwise have. And this isn't simply theoretical. We lived it. Gouging laws created so much uncertainty for merchants that instead of marshalling their resources to alleviate the market disruption, they simply fled the marketplace. Amazon, not knowing how to comply with a national patchwork of conflicting and arbitrary laws, sent cryptic warnings on gouging to its merchants, including those whose prices hadn't changed. Instead of risking suspension, hundreds of merchants simply removed listings. Amazon erased the listings of those that didn't. During the height of the pandemic, Amazon withdrew 530,000 offers of critically needed goods rather than risk arbitrary prosecution. Whoops! Now, in a University of Chicago poll of leading economists on price gouging, the results showed that 77% disagreed or strongly disagreed with price gouging laws. Only 7% agreed. Michael Salinger, the FTC's former director of the Bureau of Economics, wrote, Gouging laws stand in the way of the normal workings of the competitive market. Pacific Legal Foundation Steve Simpson unequivocally stated, Price gouging laws are economical, just idiotic, irrational, and arbitrary and a violation of the right to due process. So to finish up here, Huck Davenport says, gouging laws are the emotional knee-jerk response of unthinking legislators who can't miss an opportunity to virtue signal their excellence, no matter how much harm it does. And vague, arbitrary laws, whether gouging or not, offend the Constitution, paralyze the economy, and make criminals of honest men. And he says, surely we can do better. He's right. And don't call me Shirley. No, it's it's such a tough call. And, you know, we ha- I don't think we've had a good hurricane yet this year. I'm not asking for one, mind you, but it seems like during hurricane season, this is the thing you always see. People are charging 50 bucks for a case of bottled water. And I know that that seems like, oh, that's taking advantage of people, and they're just trying to get rich on the backs of people who are desperate for something to drink. But by charging $50 for a case of water, here's what happens. A person who would otherwise come in and say, oh, wow, water's still just five bucks a case. Well, I'm going to buy up every case that I've got just so I can have some extra on hand. But when it's 50 bucks a case, guess what they do? They leave that case of water for somebody who really needs it. Someone who needs it bad enough, they're willing to pay 50 bucks to get that case. And the water is there where it's needed, as opposed to taking up space in somebody's basement who got themselves a heck of a deal. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I've got a link to the article in the show notes. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I invite you to check out my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. The reason I want you to check them out is because, uh, not because there's some masterpiece of journalism or artwork, but there's just a lot of great links, a lot of great stories, a lot of great sources. I like to call them resources for wrong thinkers. And some are just, you know, chock full of great stuff to consider on a daily basis. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swerve into a topic here that is, to me, this is one of the scarier things that's going on. But I want to share it with you, and then, uh, then I'm going to end on a much more positive note. I know it might be a tough pill to swallow, but it sure looks like the world's political leaders are deliberately trying to place their populations in a position of cold and hunger. Like, seriously, they, they want people freezing and starving. And I, there's a time where I would have said, there's no way. There's no way there's that kind of mendacity on the part of, of you know, the ruling class. But after what I saw during the COVID lockdowns, some of the antics that I've seen just in the last few years, I'm like, I don't think I can say that. I don't think I can categorically reject the idea that, oh, yeah, they'd be willing to starve people into submission. I think they would have done it already but just couldn't figure out good enough justification for how to make it happen. Look at what's happening with Europe, with their energy crisis. See, this is of particular interest to me. I have a daughter and son-in-law and a couple of grandkids who live in Europe, and it's I, I'm very concerned for them. You know, they drive an electric car. I'm, I know their energy costs are going through the roof. And I've got a great breakdown here from Doug Casey on what's called the controlled demolition of the world's food and energy supplies. Now, this is an interview done with International Man, and one of the things that they're asked about here, the International Man says, Russia is one of the largest suppliers of fertilizer in the world, and tensions with the U.S. and EU are disrupting supplies. In addition, it seems there's a deliberate effort to sabotage the global agricultural industry. For example, in the Netherlands, the government's restricting the use of nitrogen fertilizer under the ridiculous pretext that it's needed to combat so-called climate change. Dutch farmers have protested the measures because they believe they will destroy their livelihoods and cause food shortages. I think I saw yesterday 11,200 farms will be turned over to the government. Now, yeah, the farmers are going to be compensated, but... Out of 50,000-some farms, that's a big chunk of, of farming taken off the table. How could that not cause food shortages? In Canada, Trudeau's government's announcing a similar policy. Other governments will likely follow. So Doug Casey is asked, what's your take on this? Is this a deliberate plan to disrupt food supplies? Here's his answer. Doug Casey says, you know, this meme has been circulating along with three related ones for a couple of years. It's as if the world's governments decided to unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence, war, famine, and conquest. So the COVID hysteria and subsequent vax mania, that could probably stand in for pestilence. The U.S. proxy war against Russia in the Ukraine has every chance of getting much worse. Vastly higher commodity prices caused by central bank inflation and state dictates will cause famine rather in poor countries. And as for the fourth horseman, conquest, well, that could be translated as state power, kings and rulers, of course, but it evidences itself as socialism and authoritarianism today. 
His point is, we're in for tough times. The four horsemen are saddling up. But he says, let's look at famine. Few people realize that before the Industrial Revolution, which only started in the 19th century, the world was perennially on the edge of mass starvation. Privation and hunger were normal. Hobbes was right when he said life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The Industrial Revolution, powered by coal and then oil, changed the nature of life itself. Food has become abundant and is now by far at the cheapest levels in history. But that may be changing. Basic commodities like wheat, soybeans, and corn have doubled in the last couple of years. Incomes haven't. And he says, I doubt this is just a cyclical, self-adjusting fluctuation. It's much more serious. So what's going on? What's the deeper cause behind it? Well, in Doug Casey's estimation, that great COVID hysteria was the catalyst that put the World Economic Forum's Great Reset in motion. Even though the flu itself turned out to be a big nothing, it brought on a collapse in economic activity. The Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka, a place few think about, seemed to lead the way. Its rulers decided to make it the most ESG-compliant country in the world at the time the tourism collapsed because of the pandemic hysteria. So here's what that looked like. The government banned imported fertilizers in 2021, and the production of tea and rice collapsed 50%. Now, Sri Lanka made the news because of the depths of its self-caused disaster. And he says, I wonder, since Sri Lanka is an island with a very authoritarian government, whether this was an experiment to see what happens if you cut off all fertilizers and create an agricultural crisis in a country. Does it sound crazy? Well, Doug says, I think it's a real question. It's crazy, but that's exactly what happened. He says, it's possible the world's elite have decided among themselves that the world has too many people and that too many of them are what the World Economic Forum's court intellectual, Yuval Noah Harari, has called useless mouths. So with few exceptions, all the world's leaders are members of the World Economic Forum. They all have common interests, share the same elitist collectivist philosophy, promote each other, and have a common party line. The elite are to blame for the problems that we have now. That is the release of the four horsemen. And Doug Casey says this isn't just conspiracy theory. This is a recognition of the fact that birds of a feather flock together. And once members of the elite become internationally influential or control a government, they become a class. Now he says, I hate to sound Marxist talking about class interest, but it's true. The people who run most governments are much more loyal to their class, the international elite, than they are to their constituents or their countrymen. They think alike, they went to the same schools, they go to the same clubs, read the same books, go to the same conferences, have the same worldview, and become friends with each other. They're influenced by the same influencers. So he says, what's going on right now? It's not an accident. Now, he has some other thoughts that he offers in this uh, commentary. I'll let you sort this one out for yourself. But uh, definitely, as you see these nations and the European Union, for instance, destroying their food and energy security, hopefully you have some questions going through your mind as well. Why are they doing this? Or, on top of that, what can I do to better my position? I'll tell you this, commodities are looking better all the time. If you're in a position to, to better your standing, this is the time to do it. Because it looks like we have increasing economic, financial, political, and social challenges on the way. Just don't let it be said that nobody tried to warn us.
All right, a final note here. This is uh, an article from intellectualtakeout.org from Annie Holmquist. Once upon a time, the government encouraged real men. Now, I don't think she is encouraging FDR make-work programs so much as just pointing out that when she was visiting a camp that was, was created by the Civilian Conservation Corps, she says, I'm not big on big government projects, but reading about the CCC and its apologies make me think that this may have been one project in which the government actually did get a few things right. And, and she starts with, for instance, the CCC encouraged work over handouts, hard work at that. This was no line up and get your stimulus checks, boys. She says, anybody who's seen the landscape of northern Minnesota can quickly understand. Work in the CCC camps meant hauling huge boulders, cutting trees, and living and building life on the edge of dramatic cliffs. Now, officially, the guys were paid 30 bucks a month plus room and board. But there, there were other non-monetary benefits to life in the CCC, namely education and on-the-job training. Trained masons and other skilled laborers taught the young men under their charge valuable skills, and their classroom portion was open for general educational instruction every evening. In fact, nearly 60,000 men learned to read while working with the CCC. And of course, they realized all work and no play made their armies of men dull boys, so they organized sporting activities and opportunities to encourage sportsmanship, fun, and the kind of camaraderie and brotherhood that seems to make men grow and learn. And I thought this was actually a really good point, too. The CCC recognized the importance of family and the need to train these young men to responsibly provide for their own. Of the $30 each man earned monthly, $25 were designated to send home to help his family. Yeah, that meant he had five bucks to spend on himself. Talk about a way to encourage selfless responsibility and commitment to kin. These guys learned how to quell the storm. They learned how to ride the thunder and ditch the foppery of an easy, gentle life that was probably never available to them in the first place. So Annie is pointing out here, if, if we are facing similar challenges, what we need to be focusing on today is teaching today's young men to exchange their sparkling red pantsuits for masculine toughness that includes hard work, sacrifice for family, manly friendships, and healthy competition that they'll need to pull society out of the pit. You know what, living in farm country, I see a lot of young men who fit that description. Hard workers, common sense guys, yeah. This is The Brian Hyde Show.